Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. By now, if you're a member of this church, when you take your Bible out on Sunday, it just automatically opens up to 1 Corinthians. We've been in this epistle for quite some time, and we will continue to be in this epistle until we get through the end of chapter 16, which... Lord willing, will not be much longer. This has been a, a long climb, but it's been a good climb, and the Lord has taught us much from this epistle. And we look forward to looking at a very interesting section this morning. I sincerely hope that you've had an extra cup of coffee before you got to church today, uh, because this is one of the most theologically heavy passages, not only in 1 Corinthians, but in all of the New Testament. I really can't understate that, and uh, I took pains throughout this week to uh, study this text and uh, sort through this text so that I could be faithful in proclaiming it to you this morning. I'm going to begin reading to you uh, at verse 24, and our text will be 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 24. These are the words of God. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. We live in an era of church history that is marked by a fascination with the doctrine of eschatology. Eschatology, as you know, is the, the doctrine of last things or the doctrine of things concerning the end times. This fascination with eschatology ranges anywhere from a keen interest to a downright unhealthy obsession. Here in the Western world especially, eschatology has captivated the minds of many Christians. Because here in the West, we have the, the easy, comfortable lives that allow us the luxury of sitting around and arguing over eschatological positions. If we were in a context where just believing the gospel would bring immediate persecution, we probably would be a little bit more gracious with people who differ with us on some of these more minute points of doctrine. Uh, these debates often reek of detrimental immaturity in the faith. We all know that guy that uh, isn't faithful to a local church, doesn't read his Bible, never tithes, never exercises hospitality, never shares the gospel with anyone, but he's got a Facebook account and a computer, and brother, he's an end times guru. There's a panoply of problems associated with this sort of end times mania. 
But perhaps the, the, the greatest problem of all is a fixation on all of the wrong things. There are folks who are fixated on the Antichrist, fixated on the rapture, fixated on the great tribulation, fixated on the one world government, fixated on the mark of the beast, fixated on Apache attack helicopters. But when you quit getting your eschatology from Facebook and start getting your eschatology from God's book, you realize that biblical eschatology arrests your gaze and captures your attention and redirects your focus to be placed preeminently upon one man. Biblical eschatology crescendos, climaxes with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the telos of redemptive history. He is the inaugurator, culminator, and concluder of the end times. And any study of the last things must be a study that is focused primarily on Jesus Christ. His resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, his present intercession at the right hand of God, his second coming, and the resurrection of his people to be with him forever. And this, brothers and sisters, is exactly what we find in 1 Corinthians 15. As the Apostle Paul continues to unfold the doctrine of the resurrection of believers on the last day, he does so by focusing on the centrality of Christ as the one who brings this age to its conclusion and ushers in the age to come. Now, it's true that this text is a battleground for pre, post, and amillennialists. They love to rush to these verses and make their arguments, and I probably spent a little too much time sorting through their different arguments this week. But let me just remind you that Paul is not writing 1 Corinthians to iron out a millennial position. That's not why he's writing 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 15 to defend the doctrine of the resurrection. And he's defending the doctrine of the resurrection because the resurrection is an essential component of the gospel. Uh, Though some seem to not quite grasp this, your millennial position is not an essential component of the gospel. (laughs) And he's defending the gospel Because the gospel alone is the message that brings salvation to fallen sinners. And it is through the salvation of sinners that God accomplishes his purposes in the world and glorifies his son, Jesus the Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 is not Paul's attempt to weigh in on a Facebook eschatology argument. Paul is doing something so much bigger in chapter 15. And it's this unhealthy obsession and misguided fixation on eschatological events that often prevents us from seeing the bigger picture. Imagine, if you will, if, if Paul wrote... 1 Corinthians 15, if he wrote these verses to our modern American audience, and Paul is writing here and he says, 
Christ will deliver up his kingdom after Christ has put all enemies under his feet and then Christ will come back and then Christ will raise his people from the dead and then Christ will bring about the end of the world and then some guy in the back goes, yeah, Paul, that's great and all, but are you a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist? And to which Paul would say, if that's your first and most pressing question, you have entirely missed the point. Talking about something bigger, something grander in the, the plans and the determinate forecounsel of God. And that is what Christ has done in his person and work. So as we go through this text, all I'm asking you is don't be that guy. Don't be so hyper-focused on the specific timing of eschatological events that you miss the big, beautiful picture of what God is doing through Jesus as he brings about the end of the world. This, by the way, I could go off on so many rabbit trails here, okay? Uh, but this, by the way, is, is why it's important that we have a solid biblical theology as well as a solid systematic theology, you know, the different systematic theology is when theologians, they categorize and they label different doctrinal points according to topic. But biblical theology is when we, we take a study, we take a theme, and we trace it through the narrative of Scripture. And that's what Paul is doing with the person and work of the Lord Jesus in this text. He's tra taking Christ and he's tracing him all through this age unto the age to come. It's also why the further back you go in church history, it's harder and harder to find theologians speaking of specific millennial positions. Because they, their, their theology was not compartmentalized like that. Their theology was much more organic. And so we wonder, you know, was, what was Spurgeon? Was he... Amil or was he post-mill? Or what was Calvin? Was he, was he Amil or post-mill or pre-mill? Well, those guys didn't think just in these little narrow categories of a millennial position. They thought about the big picture of what God is doing throughout all of redemptive history. Theology for them was a web of interconnected doctrines and principles, and Christ was the grand theme at the center of it all, tying everything together. And that's how we must do theology today. Christ the center, everything flowing out from him. So my goal this morning is not to, uh, to make you a certain millennial position. <laughs> my goal this morning is to show you the magnificent excellencies of Christ as the sovereign Lord of human history. And if that's your desire, if that's your desire to see that, then may God Bless you as we dive into this text. Well, as we come to verse 24, it's imperative that you remember what Paul has already done in this chapter and what he's been doing in this chapter. In chapter 15, Paul is combating those in the Corinthian church who were denying the resurrection. Remember in verse 12, he says, there are some of you who say there is no resurrection of the dead. And he begins in verse 1 of this chapter, not by uh, directly addressing the resurrection, but by declaring again the gospel of Christ to the Corinthians. And he does that because he wanted to frame the discussion by reminding them of what's at stake. What is at stake when we begin to question or to deny the resurrection? Well, the resurrection is an indispensable 
element of the gospel message. So to deny the resurrection is to deny the gospel. And to deny the gospel is to abandon any hope of salvation. Well, Paul then focuses on historical proofs for the resurrection of Christ. And even though it was specifically the resurrection of believers on the last day that some in the Corinthian church were questioning, Paul knew that these two resurrections, that of Christ uh, 2,000 years ago and that of his people on the last day, uh, Paul knew that these two resurrections were connected. So if he can historically prove the one, he historically proves the other. If Christ rose, so too will his people. So he presents a list of historical evidence in verses 5 through 8. Then he gives us a personal testimony to the impact of the resurrection upon his own life, verses 9 through 11. And then he gives us an examination of the consequences of denying the resurrection, verses 12 through 19. Do you remember that section where Paul said, you know, if Christ be not raised, we have no hope. We're of all men most miserable. Those who are perished are, are, are dead. They're not with the Lord. They're not sleeping. They're, they're lost forever if there is no resurrection. Our gospel is false. We're false witnesses of Christ if there is no resurrection. Your faith is vain. It's powerless. It's pointless if there is no resurrection. And then... In verses 20 through 23, Paul gives this emphatic declaration of the believer's union with the risen Christ. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. We see this running all throughout this chapter. And now as we come to verse 24, Paul begins with this grand indicative statement It's the reason why I began this morning by giving you that little spiel on a proper philosophy of eschatology. Paul begins with this statement in verse 24, Then cometh the end. Then cometh the end. Well, verse 23 leaves us with little question as to what end this is referring to. Paul says in verse 23, uh, speaking of the resurrection, every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So Christ returns, his people are resurrected. Verse 24 says, and then cometh the end. And this is the end that comes after the second coming, that comes after the final resurrection of the dead. This is the end of redemptive history. This is the end of this age. This is the end of the world as we know it. It's the end. Uh, If you have a Bible that puts words in italics that were added by the translators to help with understanding, you'll notice that the word come or cometh is in italics. So literally, uh, it's a very direct verse. Uh, Paul says, Christ comes back. Christ is resurrected. He's the first fruits. Then they, which are Christ at his coming, then they're resurrected. Then The end. So when when does the end come? Again, I'm not trying to prove an eschatological position, but when does the end come? The second coming. Uh, One brother, I like the way he put it. He said, I believe in the big bang theory of eschatology. Christ comes back, bang, the end. The end 
in verse 24, speaks not so much, though, of just an order of events, but it speaks of reaching a completed goal. The telos of God's eternal decree is realized at the second coming. This is the end of everything God has purposed and planned to do through the salvation of his people throughout this age, the end. The accomplishment of of everything that he is seeking to do through the Redeemer, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus, it is all brought to a fulfillment at the second coming. The very next word in verse 24 is the word when. Then cometh the end when. And this word when is going to tell us what this passage is all about. Verses 24 through 28 of our text, Paul is describing and identifying the specifics of the end. So to understand this passage, you must have a biblical theological connection in your mind between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people as it relates to the unfolding of redemptive history. You can look at this age. When I speak of this age, the the one that we're living in now, you can look at this age as an age that is bookended with two resurrections. This age is inaugurated with the resurrection of Christ, and it concludes with the resurrection of his people on the last day. And this text highlights the particulars of what that looks like for us. Then cometh the end, when... So when we say that this present age comes to an end, what specifically do we mean? Or to ask it another way, what ends with the world? When the world comes to an end, what else comes to an end? Well, that's the question that's answered in this text. And by way of an outline, I want to show you from these verses four things that come to an end when Christ returns and resurrects his people from the dead. And, and buckle in your seatbelts and hang on with me because this, this text is not necessarily easy sledding. We need to deal with some, some pretty big Christological themes here. So, number one, the first thing that our text tells us comes to an end when Christ returns, when the, the resurrection of the dead happens, it's the end of the rule of Christ as mediator. The end of the rule of Christ as mediator. Well, where do I get that? Well, from this phrase in verse 24. Then cometh the end when he, that is Christ, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. At the end... Jesus will deliver up the kingdom to his father and his rule over this kingdom as he exercises it in this age will come to an end. Well, let me tell you what this means by first telling you what it can't mean. When we speak of Christ as king, we must realize that there is a threefold understanding of his kingdom and of his kingship. Number one, There is a kingdom that belongs to him as a divine person in which he rules exhaustively as king over all things. 
He is the the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And as God, he rules as king over all of the created order. Well, secondly, there is a kingdom that uniquely belongs to him as the son of God, in which he rules especially as king over the redeemed elect of God throughout all ages. Well, neither of these two aspects of Christ's kingdom can be in view in verse 24, because verse 24 speaks to the delivering up of this kingdom at the end of the age, and because Christ will never cease to be God and never cease to be the Son, he will never cease to be the king over these kingdoms. So the kingdom in view here in verse 24 refers to a third aspect of Christ's kingdom that he rules over by virtue of an office held in this age. An office that he steps into at the incarnation and an office that he terminates at his second coming. The kingdom that Jesus delivers up to the Father at his second coming is the intermediate kingdom over which he rules in this age as the last Adam and the son of David. The delivering up of this kingdom refers to the termination of elements of his office bearing, which are incarnational and by virtue of his resurrection. They're not elements of his nature, which is eternal and unchangeable. Okay, they're incarnational. Let's see if I can break this down. Uh, and I'll ask for your head nodding participation here. Okay, let me ask you some questions and see if we can break this down. Is Jesus eternally God? Yes. Okay. Yes. Amen. Okay. Here's a more difficult question, but it's, the answer is very important that we get this right. Is Jesus eternally the Son? Yes, he is. Amen. Okay. Jesus does not become God. Jesus does not enter into sonship. He is eternally God, and He is eternally the person of the Son. Now, here's how we should understand verse 24. Is Jesus eternally the God-man? No, He's not eternally the God-man. Because that is an office that He enters into. At his humanity. That is, that is a, a nature that he took upon himself in his incarnation. There was never a time when Jesus became God, but there was a time in which Jesus became man. Is Jesus eternally the last Adam? Is Jesus eternally the son of David? No, these are offices that he bears as a human descendant of Adam and a human descendant of David in fulfillment of the Davidic and gracious covenant. Therefore, brothers and sisters, my contention is that the kingdom that Jesus delivers up at the end of the age is a kingdom over which he rules, not by virtue of his deity, but by virtue of his humanity. It is a kingdom over which the man Christ Jesus rules as mediator. 
It is a kingdom that consists of all of the elect redeemed in this age. It is a kingdom that continues to expand throughout this age as the gospel goes forth and Christ adds to his kingdom through the salvation of sinners. But one day, the fullness of this kingdom will be realized. All of the elect will be gathered together. All of the redeemed will be saved. And Christ will return to raise his people from the dead. And on that day, he will present his church to himself and deliver up this kingdom to the Father. Question. When did Jesus, the God-man, the last Adam, the son of David, the mediator, ascend to the throne of this intermediate kingdom? Jesus ascended to his throne as mediator at his resurrection. Acts 2 and verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ, resurrected to sit on David's throne. This is what Daniel the prophet was foretelling in chapter 7 in verses 13 and 14, when, when Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Jesus is eternally Lord over all creation by virtue of his deity. But he becomes Lord over his redeemed people in a special way by virtue of the redeeming work accomplished in his humanity. And he mediates this kingdom as the last and better Adam and David's greater son, and his official reign over this intermediate kingdom commences with the resurrection and it consummates with the resurrection of his people on the last day. When Jesus is giving the great commission, you remember what he said to, to his church. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And we think, what do you mean, Jesus? All power is given unto you. You're God. You already had all power. Yes, he did already have all power. But when he says that, he's speaking of the power he receives in this intermediate kingdom. He's saying, I am the Redeemer who has risen from the dead and ascended to the throne. And as mediator, I possess unrivaled dominion over my redeemed people. Then he tells his church what? Go ye therefore. Therefore, because, because I've ascended to my intermediate throne. Because I'm sitting at the right hand of God. Because I'm the king of this kingdom. Go. Because all power has been given unto me. Go and expand my kingdom by preaching the gospel, teaching the nations, and baptizing them in the name of the triune God. 
Jesus tells His church in Luke twenty two twenty nine. what does He tell them? I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me. When the resurrected Christ ascended to the throne, the Father appointed unto Him an intermediate kingdom. And in the Great Commission, Jesus appoints the growth of that kingdom to His church. The Great Commission is a commission to expand this intermediate kingdom of Christ until the expansion comes to its completion with the salvation of all the elect. And then Christ will return to resurrect all the members of that kingdom and He will deliver that consummate kingdom to the Father. When this age comes to an end, Jesus will hand over that kingdom to the Father because His work of expanding the kingdom through the salvation of His people will be totally complete. So there is an end to the rule of Christ as mediator. But secondly, from this text, I want you to see that there is an end to the resistance to Christ as Lord. The resistance to Christ as Lord. Notice at the end of verse 24, the text says, When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. We've already established that the the context of this passage is the kingdom that is mediated by Christ in this age as the redeemer of his people. That's the context of this passage. And the text goes on to detail what Christ does as this king of his kingdom. And what he does is he puts down all rule and all authority and power. Christ subdues every hostile power that would disturb the tranquility of his kingdom. If you don't understand the the nature and the goal of this intermediate kingdom, you will struggle to see how this can be true. You look around the world today and you see wicked men waxing worse and worse. You see sin abounding. You see countries with their rulers wanting nothing to do with Christ and His gospel, and you wonder to yourself, how can it be true that the risen Christ is ruling and reigning right now, subduing His enemies? It's true. Because the kingdom of Christ is not like the kingdoms of men. The glory of Christ's kingdom is not seen in its earthly might but in its spiritual power. Remember what Jesus said about his kingdom in Luke 17 uh, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. And he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. That doesn't come with a big flashy bang and a, a, a trumpet entourage. The kingdom comes like yeast in a leaven of Bread, a loaf of bread, not like the 101st Airborne at Fort Campbell. Jesus says, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. 
The empires of this world may build a carnal kingdom with a glory that lasts 100, 200, maybe 300 years. And eventually the moths will eat it up and the rust will destroy it and the thieves will break through and steal it. But Jesus is building a kingdom in the hearts of his people that is characterized by a glory which shall never fade away. It is a kingdom with treasures laid up in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves cannot break through and steal. And the kingdoms of this world, they rise and they fall. They are built today and they perish tomorrow. But when the kingdoms of men shall crumble to the dust, Christ's kingdom alone shall stand. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. On the last day, the rulers of these earthly kingdoms will stand before the tribunal of Christ and their dominions will be pronounced to be rubbish, but the kingdom of Christ on that day will be glorified and exalted and all of its citizens will be decked with their heavenly rewards and they will shine in the brightness of New Jerusalem. In this life, Men may take great pride in the fact that they're citizens of the United States or uh, citizens of the, the British Empire, citizens of the Soviet Union, or they might really be thankful that God allowed them the great blessing of being born in the South. Amen. But on this day, this last day, when the end cometh, the only citizenship that will matter and citizenship in the kingdom of God. There's another aspect here to this putting down of all resistance against His Lordship. The words used here at the end of verse 24, rule, authority, and power, they're used in the Bible not only to refer to the physical kingdoms of men, but also the spiritual kingdoms of darkness. As the kingdom of Christ advances in this age, the, the powers of darkness are overthrown as Christ liberates His people by the grace of His gospel. Demons are cast out. The spoils of the devil are confiscated as Christ establishes and expands His kingdom in the hearts of His people. Do we not see this all throughout the gospels? As the Redeemer comes to crush the head of the serpent and to ascend to His throne, the powers of hell begin to stir. And there's all of this demonic activity that breaks out surrounding the earthly ministry of Christ. Why? Why was there such a fervor of demonic activity surrounding His first advent? Because the devil and his demons knew that the establishment of Christ's kingdom meant the destruction of theirs. He had come to bind the strong man. For the last 2,000 years, Christ has been building His spiritual kingdom through the power of His converting grace. And He's been putting down the strongholds of darkness. And He's been shutting down the outposts of Satan as He redeems His people. And this is what He will continue to do until the last of His elect are saved by His gospel. And all the forces that oppose Him are completely and utterly subdued and defeated. Verse 25, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. 
This is a direct citation of the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. It's a messianic psalm which tells us of the Father's mandate to the Son. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, the Father said to him, Son, you reign over this kingdom that I've appointed unto you until you conquer all of your enemies and you put all of your foes under your feet. You stay right here at my right hand until your utter victory has been realized. But doesn't it cause your heart to rejoice this morning, to know that there is coming a day when the Father will say to Jesus, the salvation of your people is complete. Go and deliver your kingdom up to me. Son, go get your bride. You ask, when will Christ return? (laughs) Not until his reign as Lord over his intermediate kingdom is complete and all his people are redeemed and all his spiritual enemies are put under his feet. It's what he's doing right now at the right hand of the Father. So there's a, an end to the rule of Christ as mediator. There's an end to the resistance to the lordship of Christ. Thirdly, there's an end to redemption applied. There's an end to redemption applied. Notice verse 26. It says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. As we've seen before in this chapter, one of the reasons why the doctrine of the believer's resurrection on the last day is so vital is because our future resurrection marks the completion of our redemption. Jesus did not die to save some of us. He died to save all of us. He didn't just die to save what is immaterial about you, but he died to save that which is physical also, your body as well as your spirit. And at our resurrection, our bodies will join our spirits in regeneration and in glorification. And the redemption that was accomplished once and for all 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross will be applied to our whole person. The, The redemption that Christ has accomplished has not yet been applied to your body. And I'll prove it to you because as you live the Christian life and as your spirit grows stronger and stronger in the Lord, your body grows weaker and weaker. And the last enemy, which is death, which can never touch your spirit, hallelujah, praise the Lord, that last enemy will one day overcome your body and you will die because your body has not yet received the application of the redemption that was purchased for it on the cross. But brothers and sisters, your body will receive redemption. Your body will receive a regeneration and a sanctification, and a glorification, and and, and all of the effects of sin, and all of the aches and pains of sin, and all of the complications of sin, and all of the diseases and the, the scars of sin, all of them will be wiped away in the glorification of Christ when He creates all things new, including your body. And at the resurrection on the last day, our triumphant Redeemer will assert His final victory over this last enemy. 
Death will lose its sting. The grave will lose everything that it has ever gained. And Christ alone will stand victorious on that day when He comes to resurrect the dead. Christ secured a victory over death in His resurrection, and He will exercise that victory in totality at His second coming. Christ will apply His purchased redemption to our physical bodies, and that application will result in the reversal of everything death has ever done to us. At the end of this age, at the final resurrection, the end of redemption applied will come to pass. The last act in the Ordo Salutis, our glorification, will be realized, and we will enter into the eternal eschaton with Christ in a glorified body to worship and serve and praise Him forever. But the saints, you and I, are not the only ones to receive a peculiar glory in the age to come. Lastly, fourthly, and lastly, when the end comes, there will come the end of the relinquishing of Christ's pre-incarnate glory. The end of the relinquishing of Christ's pre-incarnate glory. Believe it or not, I'm trying to break this down as simply as I can. (laughs) Verse 27 is a quotation from Psalm 8 that reiterates the total dominion that will be realized at the end of this age. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith that all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. That that phrase has been a hang-up for many throughout the history of the church. What you need to understand is this. In his humiliation, in his incarnation, Christ came to this earth and veiled himself in human flesh. He was made, even for a little while, a little lower than the angels. But God visited him and granted him a dominion so that all things might be put under his feet. So the the humiliated Christ uh, was given a dominion to put all things under his feet. And then the text tells us, but when it says this, it's manifested that he is accepted, which did put all things under his feet, simply meaning this, when we say that all things have been put under the feet of Christ, obviously we don't include God the Father. We don't mean that God the Father has also been put under the feet of Christ as if he is somehow lesser than or inferior to the Lord Jesus. But then notice verse 28. This is the the quagmire here for us. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. It's the language of the Son's subjection to the Father. And this is a phrase that must be most carefully interpreted. Misinterpretation of this phrase has led many throughout the history of the church into Christological heresy concerning the person and nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We ought not interpret this verse to mean, in fact, 
We cannot interpret this verse to mean that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. Or that the Son is of any inferior value or dignity or worth in any way to that of the Father. No, the the Father and the Son share in the same divine essence and are entirely equal in their divinity. Rather, similar to how we must understand the intermediate kingdom, this subjection here again is essential to his humanity. This is not the subjection of the Son as Son, but of the Son as incarnate. When the God-man delivers up the intermediate kingdom, he lays aside his office as mediator. There's no more need for an intermediate kingdom because in the age to come, the saints dwell in the immediate presence of God. And in the age to come, Christ will still be the prophet of his church, but he will no longer teach through his spirit and through his written word and through his ordinances, but he himself will be the immediate light of the saints. In the age to come, Christ will still be the priest of his church, but he will not plead for us and intercede for us in the same way he does now. In the age to come, Christ will still be the the king of the church, but he will not rule as mediator and his heavenly throne while uh, we are on earth, but he will rule uh, as our immediate king with we his people around his presence in his celestial throne. He he subjects himself to the Father at the end of the age in the sense that no more as the God-man does he exercise rule as mediator, but this office is laid aside and put into subjection of the eternal kingdom. That God will be all in all. That's why he does that. There's no need for, for a kingdom of God the Father that is mediated through God the Son with God the Son as a Lord over his intermediate kingdom. No, but, but Christ as mediator becomes subject unto the Father in his humanity and joins his Father back with that pre-incarnate glory as we dwell in the very presence of a king who is triune for all eternity. Christ will not rule anymore as mediator. He lays aside that office. And when God is all in all, all things will be as they should be. When Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed this petition. O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The glory that he had with the Father before the world was. He's saying, glorify me with that glory. Well, he received an answer to that prayer in three stages, didn't he? He received an answer to that prayer on the cross. He received an answer to that prayer three days later when God raised him from the dead. But the fullest and final answer to this prayer comes at the end of this age when Christ resumes his pre-incarnate glory which he had before the world for us to behold. We behold, we will behold the pre-incarnate glory of God in Christ. Calvin said of this verse, and that's what you do when, you're, when you preach a difficult verse, you quote Calvin, so nobody can come and tackle you after the service. Calvin said about verse 28, Thus then Christ will be subjected to the Father, because the veil being then removed 
we shall openly behold God reigning in his majesty and Christ's humanity will then no longer be interposed to keep us back from a closer view of God. He didn't become a man for his benefit. He became a man for our benefit. He he didn't become a man to reveal more of his divine glory. He became a man because we had no ability to perceive any of his glory whatsoever. But one day we will perceive his divine glory. And he will lay that humanity aside. And we will behold him without a veil. Brothers and sisters, I ask you as we close this morning, are you longing for this day? Are you longing for the day when the end comes? Are you longing for the day when Christ will return and resurrect you from the dead? Are you longing for the day when he will deliver up a kingdom to his father that includes you as a citizen? Are you longing for the day when the Son of God will subdue all of his foes and place all enemies under his feet? Are you longing for the day when there will be no veil that prevents us from basking in the glory of our great almighty triune God? Listen to these stirring words from the great particular Baptist pastor from Kettering, John Gill. As he comments on 1 Corinthians 15, 28, by the way, of all of the Reformed commentators throughout history, perhaps none is better than Gill on the doctrine of Christ and the Trinity. Gill says this, when it says that God might be all in all. Gill says, for by God is not meant the Father personally, but God essentially considered Father, Son, and Spirit, who are the one true and living God, to whom all the saints will have immediate access, in whose presence they will be, and with whom they shall have uninterrupted fellowship without the use of such mediums as they now enjoy. What does he mean there? Well, you want to be in the presence of Christ now, you got to go to church. you got to hear the word preached. you got to partake of the ordinances. But Gil says there's coming a day in which we will have uninterrupted communion with him without the use of any means. Behold Him face to face. All the three divine persons will have equal power and government in and over all the saints. They will sit upon one and the same throne. There will be no more acting by a delegated power or a derived authority. God will be all things to His saints immediately without the use of means. He will be that to their bodies as meat and clothes are without the use of them. And all light and glory and happiness to their souls, without the use of ordinances or any means, he will then be all perfection and bliss to all the elect, and in them all, which he not now is not, because some are dead in trespasses and sins, and under the power of Satan, the number of them in conversion is not yet completed. And of those that are called, many are in a state of imperfection, and have flesh as well as spirit in them, And of those who are fallen asleep in Christ, uh, though their separate spirits are happy with him, yet their bodies lie in the grave and under the power of corruption and death. 
What's Gil saying? He's saying that, that the elect of God are all scattered. Some are dead in the grave with their spirits in heaven, bodies in the grave. Some are not yet even born. Some are born but not yet converted. Some are converted but they, they still have an unglorified body. They're all in a different place. But then, on that day, all being called by grace and all being raised and glorified in soul and body, God will be all and all. This phrase expresses both the perfect government of God, Father, Son, and Spirit over the saints to all eternity and their perfect happiness in soul and body, the glory of all which will be ascribed to God. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but when I consider a text like this, And a truth like this, that there's coming a day in which my body will be glorified. I will be surrounded by all of my brothers and sisters throughout all of the ages. And I will dwell in the immediate presence of God. I love this church and I love you all. And I love what we're able to do in this age. But I read that and I say, even so come Lord Jesus. May he save his people and may he hasten the day when this is our reality. If this day doesn't bring you joy, perhaps this day even brings you fear. Perhaps this day even brings you trouble in your mind and in your conscience as you think about an eternity, not in the immediate presence of God, but an eternity separated from God. If that is you, oh, I urge you and plead with you this morning, turn from your sin Repent of your wicked way. Place your faith in the Redeemer, in the Mediator. See Him as the true and better Adam. See Him as David's greater son. See Him as the Lord of glory who descended from off His lofty throne and stooped to do and die and shed His blood on the cross of Calvary and went into a borrowed grave. But brothers and sisters, in the grave He did not stay. For it was not possible for death to have hold upon Him. Death on that Friday night swallowed up the Lord Jesus Christ And death on that Friday night was feeling pretty good about itself. Death on that Friday night was thinking to itself, I don't think I've ever had a better meal than this meal. Death was saying to itself, Oh, Moses and the prophets, they tasted pretty good, but I've never had a meal that was quite as delicious as this meal. And death had swallowed up the Lord Jesus, and death had... Jesus in its stomach. But then on into Saturday, death started feeling a little bit of indigestion. Death started to feel a little bit of nausea. And death couldn't find Pepto-Bismol to ease its discomfort. And death couldn't take any Imodium to stop what was happening inside of it. Death came to the realization that death would not be able to hold down this meal. Brothers and sisters, early on a Sunday morning, death spat up the Lord Jesus Christ because it was not possible for death to have a hold upon Him. And one day, when Jesus returns, He will take all the spoils that death ever thought it had, and God 
will be all in all. And so we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Father, we do thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us. We thank you for this text of Holy Scripture. And we thank you for the reality of what Christ has done and what he promises to do at the consummation of this age. Oh, Lord, we love you and we thank you for these precious gospel truths. May you hasten the day when our Lord returns, resurrects us from the dead, delivers up this kingdom, and God will be all in all as we dwell immediately in his presence. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We long for your return. In Jesus' name, amen.